Welcome to another episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, season three, where our theme is biblical theology. I just got done going through a book of biblical theology in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series that's actually written by several acquaintances, one of whom is a friend, Jared Compton. That's who I'll be talking with today. You'll hear this, but what I found to be so insightful was really just the central conceit, the basic approach of the book, that they decided to ask the New Testament writers, the apostles, what is your view of biblical theology? They looked for apostolic summaries of Israel's story. I just want to go right to my talk with Jared Compton. really great to have Jared Compton on the uh, Bible Study Magazine podcast today. And I just want to jump right in and ask you, Dr. Compton, how do you serve the body of Christ? Mark, uh, I, as well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the work you're doing. So it's a joy and kind of an honor to be on here. So I serve the body of Christ. I'm a pro assistant professor of Greek and New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I've been here on our faculty for about a year and a half, coming to the faculty after serving for five or six years as a pastor in Wisconsin. So uh, I, I was in the academy prior to coming to Bethlehem. I, was, I taught at Detroit Baptist Seminary. I think you knew this uh, back in the day when I was fresh out of seminary. So it's good to be back in the academy and working with a good set of brothers and sisters here at Bethlehem. So it's a joy to serve in the way the Lord's given me to. Now, isn't it true? Am I mixed up? Because, of course, Andy Nacelli is a friend of both of us, um, that professors at Bethlehem also need to be elders at the church or at a church. What's the structure there? Yes. So the... Professors at the seminary need to be elder qualified, so they need to be uh, able to serve as an elder at one of uh, at a church. In fact, originally, uh, professors at the seminary needed to be uh, members at one of the three Bethlehem campuses. We've got a north, downtown, and south campus. So. Uh, sort of on paper at one point we we're supposed to all be members of one of those campuses and be able to serve as an elder though not necessarily uh serving for instance i'm not currently an elder at our campus some of that owes to the fact that as i said we just moved here what's interesting is over the last year or so we were sort of trying to figure out uh as you probably know post uh john piper ecclesiology so uh, it's been an interesting time in the life of our church for a number of reasons, but one of them being we're trying to figure out what, what does it look like to be three campuses, have three preaching pastors, have a measure of kind of autonomy and independence. So I'm kind of eager to see where that discussion goes. Yeah. So, so yeah. I think you've just announced your next book, Post John Piper Ecclesiology, PJPE, <laughs> for yeah, short. Yeah. Thank you for letting yeah. the cat out of the bag. Absolutely. But your most recent book, and I've got it up on the screen behind me, and I'll see if my tech can put it up on the screen for everybody, is a book in the New Studies and Biblical the New Studies in Biblical Theology yep, yep. series. And why don't you just give us the full title? Yeah, it's called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel 
Now, what's interesting is in the British release of the book in the first uh, run, the first printing, the subtitle was erroneously put, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of the Old Testament. So I imagine those will be collector's items in the coming years. So if you get a copy of those, I actually have one right here where it says, you. I don't know if you can see, but it says biblical theology according to the apostles, how the earliest Christians told the story of the Old Testament. So there's probably a few hundred of those uh, flying around, but that the subtitle should be the story of Israel. So I've been asking a question to everybody who's come on the podcast for this third season, the theme of which is biblical theology. And I've been fascinated by the overlapping, but also somewhat differing responses that I get. What mm. is biblical theology? It's a good question. Uh, biblical theology is an attempt to, uh, using the categories that the Bible itself gives, um, synthesize the material content of uh, Holy Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. So it's a synthetic process like systematic theology, but it's concerns, the questions that biblical theology asks, ideally are questions and concerns that kind of lie at the heart of the Bible's story. So there's room for other things. There's room to talk about um, implications of things along the way, but that's where we sort of move out of the realm of biblical theology into other things, uh, most notably into systematics. One of the reasons that your biblical theology book got on my radar, because I only have 12 slots to fill for each season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, is not only that we went to school together years and years ago, although mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't remember ever having a conversation with you. I can't remember how much like how many years we differed, mm -hmm. but I know your family. And I did an, uh, an issue of Bible Study Magazine called Unsung Heroes of Bible yeah. Study. And your book had gotten on my radar for other reasons. And I noticed in the front that it was dedicated to Patrick Griffiths. And when I got into his story a little bit, I thought he would be a great candidate for yeah. putting on the cover. It ended up being we put somebody else on, but I still want to know who is this Pastor Patrick Griffiths that you dedicated your book to? Yeah, Pat was uh, probably the uh, single most influential non-family member in my um, elementary, high school, and early college years. He was a Bible teacher at a private Christian school that I went to along actually with the other two authors of this book. Um, and he uh, was the dad of one of my best friends. He uh, had gone through uh, seminary himself, had be was a first generation Christian, and had a, um, a desire to shape uh, men for kind of giving their lives to Christian ministry. Pat was the one who introduced us to this idea of, uh, he, he was always uh, emphasizing, look, don't waste your life, give your life to things that have eternal significance. And he lived that. He would come into class um, having had a precious time with the Lord that morning and would read to us from his from his journal and the kind of reality of Pat's faith was such that it was contagious. And I think there was this 
sense in our school that that Pat was very instrumental in creating, along with our senior pastor and a wonderful youth pastor, kind of this sense that uh, together we, we uh, there, there's goodness, there's joy, there's uh, there's contentment in serving the Lord, and it it set that out as a um, as as a kind of a, a goal for us as a as a direction for us to to set our lives by. And what what made Pat great is he was not only there teaching and kind of sharing um, from the front of the class, but Pat was also a soccer coach. And we would run with him after school, and we'd spend the night over his house with different friends. And he he was just he was really kind of a character in almost I'd say 50% of my high school narratives. So um, godly man now serves as a pastor in Wisconsin faithfully teaching and preaching the Bible. I should say one other thing, Mark. One of the things that made Pat great, he, he was a kind of a consummate pedagogue. Uh, he, he would uh, reduce, and, and uh, this was also maybe the thing that we would prod him for now, but he would reduce things down to very simple uh, ways of speaking. So little handles on truths like, what you doubt your students will deny or what you tolerate your students will teach or things like that that are catchy sort of uh, heuristic tools that Pat would just, they were always flowing out of him like these kind of uh, teacher gems and those stuck with us. So to this day, a group of us will get together and uh, every so often and we'll, we'll kind of just finish each other's sentences with Patisms. Um, so very, very, uh, uh, wonderful man, influential man. That's right. Yeah. In the life, the lives of not just you, but your co-authors whom you might as well name at this point. Yes. Kevin McFadden and Chris Bruno. Good. And what are these two gentlemen doing now? Yeah. So Chris recently, uh, after, uh, encouraging me to come on board at Bethlehem, Chris left to Hawaii (laughs) Uh, which was uh, sad, but also joyful, kind of fulfillment of a lifetime desire he's had to spread theological education and resources through the Pacific Rim. So Chris is in Hawaii, serving at a Bethlehem extension, having just moved out there in July of 2021. And then Kevin McFadden serves as a associate professor of New Testament at Cairn University. I think it's in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Um, just two dear brothers. Kevin grew up a block behind me. Chris was across the city, and we spent many an hour talking about all kinds of things, including the Bible, but we grew up in the bad boy era of, of uh, Detroit basketball. So uh, uh-huh. dear, dear friends to this day, uh, for which I I'm did... so grateful. Yeah, that that seems like a friendship to be truly grateful for. And I just wondered about the practicality about three people writing a book. Like, how did yeah, that work? yeah. Can you tell well, we me what was the process? Yeah, we weren't sure it would, Mark. Uh, we uh, so the long story short, uh, uh, at a ETS back in 2013, so quite a ways before the book reached the light of day. That's we the sort Evangelical of, Theological Society. That's right. That's right. We we discussed this idea, and I said, "Hey guys, I got this idea of book. We should partner in um, as a way to cut even." kind of continue Pat's legacy of 
uh, he always encouraged us to search the scriptures and we thought this would be a neat thing for us to write together. So we, we discussed the idea, divvied up the um, content of the book. We look at summaries of Israel's story. I suspect we'll talk about that here in a bit. But we divvied up the contents of the book. Each of us wrote kind of independently, and then we gathered at one crucial moment along the way for a grueling um, four-day marathon of reading each other's chapters, wrestling through uh, kind of structure and, and uh, the kinds of conclusions we were coming to independently of one another. We spent hours, hours trying to come on the, get on the same page on Romans 11, uh, 25 and 26 and Romans 9, 6. We, I, I suspect we spent 10 hours total during that long weekend which is interesting to me that here's three friends. We know each other super well. Uh, we trust each other's instincts. And ev even still, we were talking past one another. We weren't understanding each other, which makes me a little uh, pessimistic about what we can hope for from kind of other scholars who don't have that same sort of relational credibility and relational longevity. So uh, those are the kind of, that's the way it came about. Here, here's the thing I'd say. When we met for those four days, there were several moments along the way where we, honestly, we felt the Lord's hand and giving us clarity of direction, so much so that we stopped and and prayed and thanked the Lord. Kind of moments where we thought, oof, the Lord just gave us that, or the Lord just uh, brought us on the same page, or, or um, allowed us to kind of smooth out what seemed to be in, in uh, a complex issue that, that uh, wouldn't be resolved. And the Lord helped us. And so many times along the way, we just stopped and thanked him for it. So it ended up being as grueling as I said it was initially, a really sweet time of fellowship together and with the Lord and the, the product that we kind of were able to produce at the end is something we feel really proud about. Praise God. And, and it's a yeah. beneficial work. You know, sometimes just the central insight of a book is enough yeah. for me to like justify having read it. Because of course, I mean, mm -hmm. who but some of our most gifted friends can remember everything they read. I don't. But yeah. when a book really hammers at something central, that's mm -hmm. what I can hold on to. And I fully expect that to happen with your book. And what the the concept that I think I'm going to hold on to is exactly what you mentioned earlier, and it was my next plan question. What yeah. is an SIS? Yeah, good. So an SIS is an acronym for a compositional category, which is just a fancy way of talking about a subgenre, a particular kind of writing called a summary of Israel's story. So it's. Uh, a definable category of literature where an author tells Israel's story over a sustained number of verses. So not just one story, not just an allusion to um, an instance from Israel's past, but tells the story, tells constituent elements of the story in often chronological sequence over the space of so many verses. And we, 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 we wanted to, and I suspect uh, this is what I found kind of the most helpful and kind of what made me want to look into these is when, when you want to figure out how does the Bible understand itself, 
how, how do we understand how to put the Bible together? There's all kinds of approaches and it can feel frustrating and everybody's going in different directions. And it seems like one of the best, most objective, and I know it's not completely objective, but most objective places where we can begin is when a New Testament author inspired by the Holy Spirit is explicitly, not implicitly, not elusively, not as an echo, but explicitly reflecting on the story and it gives you a sense for what characters does he highlight, what does he see as important, the kind of things that are you're able to see without your sort of preconceptions and prejudices coming in and clouding and sort of negating. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be a great place to start to kind of put some stakes in the ground? Whatever else we say about how the Bible tells its story, here's five or six things we know for sure it says on which I think we all can agree. And so summaries of Israel's story was the window into doing that kind of thing. We talk about in the book using the metaphor as it's the tip of an iceberg, the iceberg being the whole way the New Testament uses the old and tells the old story. These summaries of Israel's story are the tip of an iceberg. They stick out above the water. They're pretty objective, pretty explicit. What a great place to start if you're going to try to sketch the rest of that iceberg. Yeah, if someone had asked me, okay, where in the New Testament does any apostle uh, or any inspired writer um, or any character give a summary of Israel's story, my mind would have gone right to Acts 7 and Stephen as Mm -hmm. he's just about to be stoned and he tells the story of Israel's history. Um, That's the one that came right to mind. But you present more than one and more than just that one, although that one is included. How many of these summaries of Israel's story does your book examine and what are they? Uh, yeah, so my mind would go right to Acts 7 too. That's good, Mark. Uh, there, there, as you say, there were others. Uh, some of the help for identifying these has to go to, some of the credit has to go to a really helpful article by Michael Emerson and Jason Hood, where they discuss this compositional category. Uh, your listeners can easily Google that article. Um, and in there, they listed... Um, about, I think they may have given eight um, summaries of Israel's story. We ended up simply talking about, I think we looked at seven. I'm going to go through them and we'll see if my math is correct. We look at Matthew's genealogy. We look at Matthew's uh, telling of the parable of the tenants. So how does Matthew tell Israel's story? We look at how Luke tells Israel's story. And there, as you say, we look at Acts 7, Stephen's speech, and then we look at Uh, Paul's speech in Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13, where he tells the story once again. So that's Matthew and Luke. I think that adds up to four. Then we looked at Galatians 3 and 4, where Paul tells the story of Israel. That's actually when I began thinking about this. That's one of the first places I went to. It's, It's so interesting there where Paul talks about the relationship between the law and says, historically, hey, that promise came beforehand. Isn't that interesting? So we looked at Galatians 3 and 4. We looked at Romans 9 through 11. Um, and then we looked at a really interesting one in Hebrews, the kind of famous Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, which actually is, again, a chronological, mostly chronological retelling of Israel's story. There were other uh 
options on the table that we decided not to consider for various reasons, most of which uh, they didn't meet the criteria to, to the extent that we thought they should in order to be included. One would, of those would have been Revelation 12, which on some readings seems to be a retelling of Israel's story, basically from creation, uh, for all, going all the way back to creation. We ended up ruling that one out for various reasons, which uh, we talk about in our introduction. Yeah, I... I uh, especially read that first chapter on Matthew Mm -hmm. and found that seeing the genealogy and the parable of the tenants as summaries of Israel's story was genuinely enlightening. Of course, I mean, even Bible scholars, we come across the genealogies and sometimes we admit to sort of twilling our thumbs and hoping we can get through this faster. Mm -hmm. Although Mm -hmm. actually I have a really awesome recording of a really cool composition by Arvo Pert, an Estonian composer, where they sing through the genealogy. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but... Wonderful. No, wonderful. It's really fantastic. You've Mm, got to hear mm. it since you've written a book that includes this. And Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, why did I never see it this way? And I found it so helpful because... I've recognized that there are some difficulties that come along with the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. And although my former pastor actually wrote his dissertation years ago on the Matthewan genealogy, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've been fully satisfied with the explanations I've heard for why does some people appear to be left out? Why is it so episodic? Why is it structured this way? And to Mm -hmm. see it as a summary of Israel's story, I found to be stimulating and very helpful, something I'm going to continue to consider. And then you sort of you, you want to hear from Jesus. And so it's tantalizing yeah. in Luke 24, yeah. where he tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus all the stuff we'd want to know for our book, you know, <laughs> um, that he didn't actually, it's not actually recorded. But mm-hmm. you saw through the parable of the tenants that Jesus does actually speak to Israel's story. That's and right. I wanted to ask you about that. I'm going to go ahead and quote a paragraph from your book where you talk about the, the, uh, the summaries of Israel's story in Matthew. You said that, and I don't know who wrote this, I'm just going to say you plural. In both the genealogy in Matthew and the parable of the tenants, the kingdom of God and reign of the Messiah point forward and outward to the Gentile nations. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, how so? Just in case you can't remember the stuff that you wrote in your own book, I've got a couple notes on the things that you said. But what are the ways that those two SISs point to the inclusion of the Gentiles? Mm, It's good. Uh, So the genealogy points to the inclusion of the Gentiles through those very interesting inclusion of those women. So a lot of uh, Bible readers will know that as you read through the genealogy of Matthew, There's women that show up, and surprising women show up. So you've got Tamar, who shows up. Oh, that's curious. You Ruth shows up. All right, that you're 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 uh, you've got question marks kind of being raised. You've got uh, I missed the second lady who shows up. Rahab. Thank you. You've got Rahab, who also shows up in Hebrews. But then you've got Bathsheba, who shows up. And you think these are curious um, people inclusions. to ide- inclusions in, in the genealogy of Messiah. And one of the implications of these were was that even in the retelling of Israel's story via genealogy, 
Jesus, mediated through Matthew, is telling us uh, God's story always intended to be outward-facing. It always anticipated to be drawing in Gentiles, the nations. And these women, yes, in some senses disreputable, but more so show their... um, the tenacity of their faith. I, I think that's what that genealogy points out more than anything else is these women held on. They were like the woman, the, the Syrophoenician woman who said, look, just give us crumbs that fall off the table. We'll, we we I know that one so much. Oh man, I love that. We know the food, the, the bread is for the sons and daughters, but even the dogs under the table, they get crumbs. And here we've got four women who show the same kind of resilient faith. Uh, it's beautiful. So that's how... Uh, the genealogy does it. At the end of the parable of the vineyards, uh, Jesus talks about the vineyard being given to those who are uh, who are faithful, who do 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 what God intended the original keepers of the vineyard to do: uh, to be faithful, to steward the vineyard, to produce the fruit, uh, to listen to the um, emissaries that come from the vineyard owner. So it's a hint. It it doesn't exclude. It's not. It's saying in so many words that the original um, uh, recipients of this um, gift, which we see the vineyard as uh, tantamount to the Abrahamic covenant, it, it it's it's not saying that those original ethnic recipients are now. It's they're completely displaced. But what it does do, like Re- Romans nine through eleven does, and like the genealogy does, is it says the real recipients have always been and will continue to be those who show the requisite faith, the requisite requisite love for uh, God's word, God's revelation, for God's God's, uh, emissaries. So it opens the window to saying there's a way to get in that doesn't require ethnic descent from Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Might that, what might that say to um, Gentile readers, to, to Gentile God-fearers, to others within the early Roman world and beyond? And it's, it's a window that opens up. Of course, we're still in the gospel and the point of, in the uh, timeline of chronology of biblical theology. We're not yet to the cross and to the mission that follows the cross, but it definitely is a a, a very explicit um, foreshadowing of that missional kind of emphasis that Acts and, and others, even the end of Matthew, will give us. Yeah, that was a consistent theme I saw in your book. You, you were drawing that point out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, you make a point I've heard a number of times and then a point I hadn't thought of. You go back in the story to the very beginning, Genesis 12, where when God speaks to Abraham, his blessing to Abraham is meant to be spread to every family of the earth. That I've heard many times. What you brought out in the book in the 
last chapter before the sort of summing up chapter, the one on Hebrews, is the thing you just mentioned, that that book also draws the Gentiles into Israel's yes, story so that yes. I'm not going to remember the specific wording either, but um, so that um, you, the Jews, would not be blessed without the Gentiles also being blessed. You're, you're yes. bringing the two together like Ephesians 2, the wall of yes. partition between them is eliminated. I found that to be helpful and encouraging. Mm -hmm. My own wife is ethnically Jewish and ethnically mm -hmm. Greek. Jew and Greek wow, together. Wow. And she mm -hmm. is, of course, a Christian believer. So these mm -hmm. issues of Jew and Greek are very real to me. Mm -hmm. um, I also mm -hmm. just ran into a pastor who is ethnically Jewish, preached an excellent sermon in my area on a psalm, and he happened to talk about a textual problem in the Hebrew. It was sort of a textual and translational problem in Psalm mm -hmm. 7710. And he's like, hey, if anybody here, you know, wants to know more about this, he just kind of chuckled like, you know, nobody's going to want to know this really obscure thing. So I walked right up to him afterward with my Hebrew Bible and I said, yeah, tell me, tell me all about it. And that started, he's like, who are you? So we had coffee and he was talking to me too about insights he had into mm -hmm the relationship of Jew and Gentile, even in into a mature pastorate. The Bible mm -hmm. has a lot to say about mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. I, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. I won't go there. I, I want to go still back into Matthew. That that was the mm -hmm. chapter where I was kind of struggling to, to get the big picture, even though yeah. now I feel like you gave it so clearly. How did I miss it? But I was working mm -hmm. through this material, mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. relate, especially the parable of the tenants, to um to the overall picture, the summaries of Israel's yeah. story that, yeah. that you're yeah. telling. And I'm going to give you another quote from your book and have you reflect on it if you would. So you said, sure. the second contribution we see in Matthew, this is after the genealogy, is that the covenant structure of Israel's story helps us perceive that for Matthew, the story is not complete. The genealogy indicates that with the coming of the Messiah, the fourth chapter of Israel's history has only just begun. Mm. This is confirmed, you write, through the commission found in the last few lines of the gospel that you just referenced in our talk, where the story continues into the present. You wrote, if we are to read this story with Matthew and Jesus, we must read it as an incomplete story, a story that continues even into the present. So in other words, in, yeah. in my words, the gospel of Matthew won't make proper sense without connecting it to the story that's told by, we could say, biblical theology, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. So there's a lot there in that quote. Let me pull on a few threads. So the covenant substructure was one of the things we noted kind of as a consistent uh, part of apostolic telling of Israel's story. Now we see it in Matthew and the interesting, like you said, episodic retelling of Israel's story. You've got uh, 14 generations, Abraham to Moses. I'm sorry, Abraham to David. Uh, you've got the 14 uh, uh, generations from David to exile. And then you've got 14 generations from exile to Jesus. So the covenant structure there is we, we raise the question, okay, why Abraham? Why David? Why this um, almost uh, intervening um, villain of exile between uh, David and Jesus? Because you can see, all right, Abrahamic covenant, okay, David, Davidic covenant, Messiah as the fulfillment of those two covenants, covenant substructure. But then you've got, if it's very interesting, intervening 
of uh, the attention to the exile. And, and there, as you, you note and as readers will note, we're, we're seeing that the New Testament tells us that the fundamental tension in Israel's story, maybe not explicit in every retelling of Jewish history outside of the New Testament, you can overstate this, but the fundamental tension is the um, sending of Israel into exile and Israel's awaiting of return. And that return uh, brought about and begun by Jesus is the part that you also said, pulling on another thread now, is how the story is now continuing. So the parable of the vineyards suggests that, yes, Jesus brings an end to exile, but only for those who are um, showing the kind of faith that Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and, and, and others show. Uh, it's that end of exile is, is only there for people who know and love the Lord Jesus. For others, their exile continues, and we even say climaxes in some respects, although not ultimately, but climaxes in, in a sort of foreshadowing sense in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. So the covenant substructure was our attempt to understand why focus on Abraham and then on David and then on Messiah. We see Abrahamic, Davidic, New Covenant, and very interestingly, we see the exile smack dab between the uh, announcement of those two covenant heads and the fulfillment of their promises in the Lord Jesus. So I think that's part of it. Did, did that, were there other lines to that quote that I could pull on that would help? Boy, no, I think that was excellent, what you just said. And where I'd like to go with that is I just talked to Jonathan Lundy of Biola mm -hmm. on um, the podcast. That was my most recent interview. I'm not sure what order they'll be released in. We'll see. But he wrote this book in his own um, Biblical Theology for Life series mm -hmm. in, in a biblical theology of discipleship, you know, followers of yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And he too focused on the covenant, really not even substructure, like superstructure of mm -hmm. the Bible. Like how can you miss it? And he drew really wise lessons for sanctification out of the fact that these uh, covenants, especially the main ones, they're, they're initiated by God and therefore they are fundamentally gracious, but it isn't quite yeah. right to call them all unconditional. God does give to Abraham right along with this gracious set of promises that aren't going to get violated, and we know that from the rest of the story. He does give him covenant obligations. I, that's just what came to my mind as mm -hmm. you were speaking through this. But yeah, if you if you can't see, and I didn't see growing up, I just didn't see. I didn't see the forest for the trees. I didn't yeah. see that there was this progression in the story from covenant to covenant. I had this dim idea that from old covenant under Moses to new covenant under Jesus. I mean, how could you miss that, that yeah. there are significant differences? But where does Abraham fit into this story? Where does David fit into this story? Why is Jesus in the line of David? None of that made sense to me. And the, the renaissance here of biblical theology in the last, I'm going to say 15 to 20 years, maybe 30, yeah. Um, yeah. among evangelicals, has brought out for me over and over again the importance of understanding the Bible as progressive revelation. I want to move on and ask you about some more insight that I got from your book. And I'm going to quote you again, okay? 
So you wrote, if the SIS, the summaries of Israel's story in the New Testament, are inspired examples of biblical theology, and we both agree that they are, then they they provide, you said, a kind of biblical theological, quote, rule of faith that Mm -hmm. should shape our own retellings of Israel's story. Now, Mm -hmm. as it happens, I'm in the offices of Lexham Press. I am part of Lexham Press. Um, We're doing a lot of cool stuff. And some of my um, co-workers here, one of them is right behind the wall, uh, behind my camera here. He has been shaped by the Lutheran tradition. And he and I have talked about the rule of faith in the past. And given my own background, and you happen to share a good deal of that background, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I found it to be a struggle to even understand that concept, the rule of faith. Mm -hmm. I could only understand it in the way that you are describing it. Mm -hmm. It basically is saying the forest, understand the trees in light of the forest. But the, saying the rule of faith, that, that has a history. And I mm-hmm. wondered, could you explain why you chose to, to use that term that has a history? Are you trying to transpose it into a different key, trying to use it differently than it has been? Um, or would you say that your use of that is consistent, your use of that phrase, the rule of faith, is consistent mm-hmm. with what we would find in other generally you know, Protestant and lowercase o orthodox traditions? Right. So it it that's we I remember sitting and discussing the use of that. It was meant to get our readers' attention. So you succeeded. I, I like I, yeah, I like it. yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, I I what we wanted to do. Let me talk about this before I talk about how it fits in, perhaps to kind of the larger understanding of that um, set of words that we're alluding to, echoing the bells were ringing there with this. We are trying to say, as I said kind of earlier, we we want to drive some sort of hermeneutical stakes down into the ground. Uh, Of all the ways that we could understand and read the Bible, of all the kind of private interpretations that uh, Christians have been given to, not least since the Reformation, we, we are trying to say, if you want to learn to read your Bible, we may not have a magisterium. Sometimes don't we wish we did? Um, we don't. But what we do have, of course, uh, through the lens of these three authors who are reckon- we're critical realists, we know we're seeing through a glass darkly. Not every observation we're making is 100% objective, but we think there's a measure of objectivity to the observations we're making. And to the extent that that's true, we think these are good places, these summaries of visual stories are good places from which to draw hermeneutical conclusions that thereby can guide, rule our interpretive efforts within the Bible. That's what we meant by a rule of faith. Uh, we meant hermeneutical method given to us through, from Jesus, mediated through the apostles. Now, is I think I would suggest the uh, the relationship that our understanding of rule of faith has with its kind of ecclesial tradition would simply be it's it's coordinate with it's not contradictory to they fit um, there, there there's not of course a one to one correspondence but we think the kinds of things we are observing nicely 
feather into some of the common ways we've thought about the rule of faith, the sort of measure of orthodoxy, the body of truth, the paradosis, the tradition that um, it was passed down from apostles and, and subsequent uh, uh, ecclesial tradition. So I'm not sure I'm, I'm able sort of qualified to say much beyond that, sort of historically speaking, of how exactly um, our, our rule of faith would line up with, say, a Lutheran tradition or Anglican or other uh, Protestant traditions. But I think there would be a cord- coordination, a, a, a dovetailing, a feathering in. So does that That's help? Helpful. Does that get at what you're thinking? Yeah, it certainly does. And I I know you don't teach, right? You don't teach historical theology. I certainly don't either. No. That wasn't my specialty. Were you a New Testament guy? What was your... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. New Testament. Yep. Yeah, me too. We so, dabble. We dabble in these other yeah. things. And so... And we're, well, so we, the, we're, this is where we ahead. need the help of the historical theologians. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to speak accurately about the rule of faith, but given my own shaping in, I'm going to say, our tradition, yeah. um, and you and I have very similar shaping, and I'm going to talk about that in my next question a little bit, um, I really struggle to understand what it could mean to say that the Ten Commandments are the rule of faith, which is what mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. good friend, mm-hmm. the uh, fellow mm-hmm. editor here at Lexham Press, said to me. I just can't even make sense of that, or even to talk about the Apostles' Creed as a rule of faith. Yes, um, that makes better sense. There, there's a summary of doctrine that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I read the Bible through lenses shaped by those doctrines too. Mm-hmm. But what is much easier for me to grasp, although I remember a time when I didn't, is the idea that the biblical theological story of the Bible and yes. its covenantal yes. structure—that's yes. the lens through which I need to view everything. And i that's a productive lens. That's one that I can take to a given story and judges and actually use to help me understand what's going on, where mm-hmm. I just don't even know how to use the Ten Commandments. And mm-hmm. I, maybe a little bit better, I know how to use the Apostles' Creed to come up with truth from there. But I, I to view the Bible fundamentally as a narrative, because it is. Yes. It starts in the yes. beginning and ends in the end, in the future. Right. That that's something that my humble little mind can grasp. I, I said I was going to bring up your hold dad, on, Mark, but you go let ahead. Me, just yeah. one more thing to add. I do wonder if there, the the one of the ways we can think about these uh, uh, differing rule of faiths is ours is 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 uh, a biblical theo- theological rule of faith. So going back even to my definition of biblical theology, th- this is a rule of faith that pays attention to the narrative structure of the Bible. And we all know, yes, the Apostles' Creed does uh, follow a bit of the storyline, particularly when it's talking about the Lord Jesus. But there is a sort of non-narratival uh, presentation of biblical truths that's much more systematic in focus, much more drawing out implications, not necessarily paying attention to the what's prominent in the story as opposed to what's uh, uh, secondary or tertiary. That may be a, a nice way to think of ours over against theirs. Here, if we're if we're thinking, what what are sort of the the apostolic faith of biblical theology? What were the main things the Bible, when it tells its story, is concerned with? That's what we've given, and that again shows. Look, these two things aren't at odds. Nothing we've said in ours undercuts. It shouldn't undercut, and it doesn't undercut what we see, uh, not least in those early creeds and confessions. So maybe that helps a little bit, even at as I as I heard you articulate, that was helpful to hear you talk about it, and that those ideas kind of came to mind. I wonder if that would help our listeners. 
Yeah, that's something that I'll have to give some reflection to. So for example, actually, uh, Lexham just put out its first children's book and we're gonna do a number of books in the Fat Cat series and the Fat Cat, mm -hmm. Cat stands for catechism. I've got nothing against and everything for catechisms. I catechize my children in various ways, in many ways. I've used the New City Catechism with them yeah. and I'm catechizing them even when we're not doing something formal. But my seven-year-old picked up the book on the Apostles' Creed that's illustrated by the wife of the guy who's now two doors down from me in the Lexham offices, Tasha Kennedy. It's really beautiful. And he said, Dad, did Jesus descend into hell? And I'm immediately thinking, okay, go back to systematic theology class. I remember covering this. I don't remember all the details. I'm pretty sure it goes back to an obscure passage in one of the Petrine epistles. And how am I going to explain this to a seven-year-old? And I'm like, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and I haven't actually gotten around to it. But what you just said made me think, okay, I, I know like where they're getting that from. I think think I grasp why that was important to them to relate, but that certainly doesn't seem like one of the primary things that comes out of the story of the New Testament. Please, you know, listeners out there who come from more um, liturgical or Lutheran or whatever traditions that, you know, use the Apostles' Creed more frequently, I am willing to learn. I'm just admitting that I didn't have a good answer for my seven-year-old. Mm -hmm. Publicly, I'm admitting this. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking when mm -hmm. you're talking about using biblical theology you know, to complement the role that the Apostles' Creed yeah. plays. But yeah. biblical theology brings out the big stuff, and it lets the apostles bring out the big stuff. And I don't remember mm -hmm. them mentioning Jesus descending into hell. Let me move on to the question I uh, promised a minute ago that I would ask. So your dad is, uh, I would say, an elder friend of mine. He's an extremely gracious yeah. guy, as you know better than I do. And every time I go to the Evangelical Theological Society annual meeting, I always run into him. You can't miss him. Mm -hmm. He's probably the tallest theologian you know I've ever met, other than Doug Moo. I think Doug, Doug Moo, might right. be just a little taller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and your dad always so kindly invites me to um, eat dinner with the Detroit guys where mm -hmm. one of the professors, maybe you can guess one, is always after me um, about my sort of Kuyperian tendencies and we go back and forth, but we, we have a lot of fun. So um, the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary where your dad has taught and where you mentioned earlier that you taught briefly comes from a Calvinistic and a dispensationalist tradition. And um, I've been trying to get a grasp on dispensationalism for years. I, that's another one where I just feel like I'm acknowledging publicly, I'm not smart enough to grasp why so many people I love and respect think of it so highly. So I'm gonna ask you to put yourself in the shoes of your dad. And I'm gonna read something that's in your book to you and have you respond at, you know, like for your dad. How would your dad respond to this, okay? So here's the quote. We submit then that in our own biblical theology, we should read the story both backwards and forwards. The Old Testament witness to Christ is seen more clearly through the lens of the New Testament, and thus we should use the end of the story to enlighten the beginning. On the other hand, we should also read the story forwards. We should expect the Old Testament as the very word of God to bear prophetic witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the end of the quote. Let me spell a little bit more why I'm asking, and then mm -hmm. you take it away, Bruce. Um, that's your destiny. I have commonly heard dispensationalists say that they have an Old Testament priority hermeneutic where mm -hmm. they want especially to read the story forward, and they actually say we don't want to read it backward. But I really fear that I'm misunderstanding, and that's mm -hmm. one reason I'm presenting this question to you. I have to imagine you've had these discussions yeah. with your yeah. dad. 
please respond the way your dad would and then offer your own reflections. That's very, that's an interesting way to set up the question. And you're right. My dad and I have talked about these things, uh, 20 years worth of conversations. And we were colleagues for a while in uh, Detroit, which were some of the sweetest times of my life, having my dad a couple doors down, borrowing any book I ever wanted. In fact, my library comprises about 40% Jared Compton, 60% uh, my dad's collection over 45 years of teaching. So that uh, initial question you, or that initial quote you read, I'm not sure my, I'm not sure a dispensationalist would necessarily disagree. I think most dispensationalists recognize there's a uh, fundamental, uh, how would we say, they would recognize a category of mystery that the New Testament clarifies what was ambiguous or implicit or categories that weren't connected in the Old Testament. I, I would, I think we'd be hard pressed to find dispensationalists that would read Ephesians 3 that would read Romans 16, 25 to 27, that would read Romans 11, 25 and 26, and suggest uh, that everything that the New Testament says about the Old Testament was right on the surface and everybody saw it. And if you just had read your Bible grammatically, historically, you could have seen it too. There are certain things that required an act of God, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus being the foremost example for things that were previously revealed to be understood. Um, so I not, I don't necessarily think that a dispensationalist would have to disagree. And I don't think non-dispensationalists would suggest that everything that we um, read in the Old Testament gets uh, fundamentally changed by the new, that there's no sort of straightforward lines of continuity. So many categories of the Old Testament continue through to the new. They may be transposed, but they're not fundamentally uh, altered. Uh, altered. Uh, yeah, I, I, transposition is altering in a sense, but there, there's how we describe the uh, continuity matters. So it's it's a range. So it would come down to probably specific examples of here a New Testament author says, for instance, Acts 15, that the tent of David has been restored, quoting Amos 9. And a dispensationalist would see that uh, differently than a progressive covenantalist or a covenant theologian or a new covenant theologian or uh, the, the list would go on. It would it would kind of take us going text by text, New Testament use of the old by New Testament use of the old uh, to really start elucidating the differences, which is why what this, this was one of the reasons why I thought, because Mark, that's part of my um, uh, kind of underlying motivation is I do want there to be as much as there can be within sort of Bible-believing lovers of Jesus, um, uh, kind of co continuity in the way we understand the Bible. I want us to see things the same way. So let's look then at evidence from the New Testament that is the most explicit, and let's see if we can say, hey, do you see this? Yeah, I see that. I can't disagree with that. Okay, we got that in place. All right, let's move on. And so the rule of faith that we give, I'm not sure it's necessarily 
contradictory, and this may prove then you say what utility is your book if it doesn't actually divide between branches of Christendom. That wasn't necessarily my motivation. I don't think it was Chris's or Kevin's. I think we're just trying to articulate uh, sort of some clarify and make explicit what the apostles teach us. I'm not necessarily certain that this determines whether you're this or that kind of biblical theologian. That that may be put to the test by a reading of Romans 9, 6 and Romans 11, 25 and 26, which is now why you can understand why it took us eight or nine hours to really sort of, all right, what are we saying about this? Does our evidence necessarily lead to that conclusion? Is that a step beyond what Paul is saying and so forth? So I think to summarize, I'm not sure ours that that statement would necessarily distinguish between a dispensationalist and somebody else. The the proof or the the real disagreements would come, I think, as we looked at individual texts. That's helpful. That's very helpful, and and that is what I would expect. In general, what I see from my spot, I I would say on the sidelines of. Um, covenant theology versus new covenant theology versus progressive covenantalism and yeah. progressive dispensationalism and dispensationalism and classic dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. I see a coming together. There are yeah. definitely differences there, but it feels to me like the camps are blending into one another. The very fact that there are now all these kind of gradations in the middle, mm-hmm. I tend to think is an example of that. Mm-hmm. But I've always felt like what really what I can grasp is the kind of biblical theological approach, the narratival mm-hmm. approach that you mm-hmm. present in your book. And I just can't tend to keep track in my mind of all of the, I would call them niceties, and that I don't mean mm-hmm. that to be an insult to your dad mm-hmm. or to Stephen Wellam or to others who are deeply invested in, you know, the, the gradation that they're in. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I feel like the popularity of the New Studies in Biblical Theology series and of multiple biblical theology resources like Lexham's own Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary is an indication that a wide range of Bible-believing lovers of Jesus, as you describe us, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. are coming to see the value of the that contiguous story. And if they mm-hmm. if they uh, map out those niceties a little differently, they're still in agreement on what you gave in in your book mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. the the apostles approach to this. Now, mm-hmm. I've really just got one uh, question left for you, and I'm going to give you a uh, another quote from your book and have mm-hmm. you reflect on it if you would. So you wrote that the writers of the New Testament were unable to tell the story of Israel apart from its climax in the life, mm-hmm. death, mm-hmm. and resurrection of Jesus. And of course, mm-hmm. we should be unable to do that too. And one mm-hmm. of my great Um, embarrassments in my life as a theological writer was when I wrote an entire uh, biblical theology book for eighth graders. It was so fun, just wonderful. I Mm -hmm. loved it. And then one of the reviewers came back and said, um, you didn't mention the resurrection. Like I had mentioned the death of Jesus and not Mm -hmm. the resurrection. I'm just like slapping my forehead. Mm -hmm. What in the world Mm -hmm. did I do? There was my error, okay? I didn't tell the whole story. But when you wrote that the apostles were not able to tell the story of Israel apart from its climax and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and really all those three elements are essential, life, death, and resurrection, Mm -hmm. what error do you have in mind? Like who in general commits the error of not 
telling the story with Jesus's life, death, and resurrection mm-hmm. as the climax. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not asking you to name names, but what, no, what, no, that's what good. tendency that's good. are you pushing back against? So, so th- that again speaks to the motivation for writing the book. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure we said that. I know I didn't. I'm not sure we said that to say, this is how it must be done. And by the way, we're not going to mention it, but so many people don't do this. I think what we're saying is, isn't this interesting? Don't you feel it? The, the New Testament authors are forever uh, so frequently telling the story, and they're including this as the climax of Israel's story. And by that we mean, I think this is important, it's Jesus uh, the, the whole story is about Jesus. Yes, that's true, but it's about Jesus in very specific kinds of ways, almost like how we'd think of 2 Corinthians one twenty one. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus. That doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is the referent to every Old Testament promise. And I think we get into trouble when we try to force that kind of understanding of Jesus as the sort of hermeneutical key to the Bible. But Jesus is the resolution. This is how we'd say it. He's the one who resolves the fundamental tension in the story. That's what a climax does insofar as I understand uh, narratology. Literarily, yeah. yeah. There you go. Literarily, Jesus solves the rising tension of the story, which is exile, through his death, taking on the sin of, of the people, burial, burial, he's dead, and resurrection. He's raised a new life. He's, he's, he's brought to a, a uh, place of authority at God's right hand from which he sends the Spirit, which then enables God's people to uh, be and do the things that God had intended for human beings to do all along. In that way, Jesus resolves this. How is God going to accomplish this thing that he, he showed us uh, protologically in the garden? How, how is this going to happen that he sort of hinted at? And, and pictured in the life of Israel, how will we get there? How do we get to Revelation 21 and 22, this place we're desperate to get to? We will get there only through the work of Jesus, his atoning work. So saying it that way, again, underscores. That's how, that's how every lover of Jesus, every Bible believer, ought to understand the resolution of the climax of the story. We may tell the story differently. We may have chapters in the story. You may go from return of Jesus right to new creation and not have a penultimate kind of mediatorial reign of Messiah in a millennium. You may tell the story differently, but I I would imagine most of us, all of us who read the Bible, who understand the role of the gospel, are going to put that element at the center of the story. So I, I again I don't think we're pushing against I think we're just telling Christians you got that instinct you have hey it's supported by the apostles run with that thing you're right well done you've read the bible correctly so it, it's not polemical I guess that's what I'm trying to say it's, sure. this is the book I remember I had a, a teacher in in grad school who said every sentence of the bible is polemical and I thought ah I, there's something about that's always written into a situation, et cetera. There's an occasion that's addressing whatever. And I, that I wouldn't apply that same thing to our book. Every sentence in our book, the tellings that we're trying to do are trying to show in one way or another, this is what we're learning from the apostles and we're commending it to you. We're, we're saying this is what, what Christians should do when they come to the Bible. This is how they should read it. If you're already reading it like this, keep going. 
If you're not, hey, listen to what Jesus and Matthew and et cetera others say. So that's how I would answer it. We're, we're not trying to be polemical. Good, yeah. You know, you make me think of a, a letter of John Newton on controversy, it's called in his collected writings that I've read like 25 or 30 times mm-hmm, over my mm-hmm. life. Um, I feel called to some level of writing on controversy and therefore to polemics. But one thing that Newton said that has really guided me, he said, that should not be the staple diet of the Christian. That tends to warp you. So I can absolutely confirm what you've just said and testify that your book did not have a polemical spirit. There are times when that's necessary. But it really was this delight in what we're seeing in Scripture. And here we've got apostles in ways that maybe you hadn't thought of before who are modeling for us the kind of biblical theological covenantal reading of the Bible. And and let's, along with them, raise Jesus to that height we all know that he's at, put him in that center that we all know that he's at. And again, here's confirmation. That was very edifying for me. So is this conversation. Jared, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I hope I get to see you for real at the Evangelical Theological Society one of these years. Actually, listeners and viewers wouldn't know this, but we were going to do this in person. And then the Skagit River was like mere inches from flooding in my area. And I had to stay home to protect my wife and children. I'm so glad that you uh, found some time in your schedule for us to still have this conversation. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for that time. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure. I found that conversation, I hope you did too, to be very stimulating, to be very edifying. What is my heart except to see Jesus exalted and to let the apostles teach us how to exalt Jesus, namely by seeing him as the climax that resolves the tension in Israel's story and in the story of the entire world of the Gentiles. I presume that most of my viewers and listeners are Gentiles like me. And I really do never cease to be grateful that God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would bless my family through Abraham's family. Jesus does not receive proper honor if we don't place him as the climax of the story. And vast tracts of the Old Testament especially will be dark to us. We simply won't understand them if we don't see them in the light of Jesus. They testify of him. They show the need for him they do end up exalting him to the very place that the Psalms say he would be at, the right hand of God the Father. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast or viewing it on YouTube. We are on audio and video formats. I'd like to thank also Jack Underwood, our audio tech, and Kaylee Joyce, our producer. I'm Mark Ward, editor of Bible Study Magazine, put out by Faith Life, the makers of Logos Bible Software. And if you'd like to study the Bible more deeply, Subscribe to the magazine, biblestudymagazine.com slash subscribe, or get some great Bible software. I use Logos Bible software pretty much every single day, and I've asked for a special page to be set up for Bible Study Magazine podcast listeners. Go to logos.com slash Bible study to get a recommended kind of starter package of fundamental Bible study tools, logos.com slash Bible study. Thank you for joining us. Join us again for the next Bible Study Magazine podcast. Thank you.